Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. One night, I was invited by a friend to go to a raw vegan restaurant in the East Village in New York. It was a rainy Monday night. Most restaurants were empty. And this place was full of these people that had this glowing complexion and like bright eyes and like this amazing energy. And they were all like expounding on their fascination with this raw food movement. And I was used to going out to restaurants and kind of being in a food coma after dinner, being tired, not feeling great. The next day, I just told this investor in our new restaurant that, you know, I really wanted to do a raw vegan concept. He's a little bit shocked, but went along with it. And that's what happened. I have been motivated from day one to do anything possible to shift the global food paradigm toward a plant-based diet. That's Chef Matthew Kenny. And this is the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I hope that you've been keeping well. For new listeners, I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Matthew Kenny, thank you so much for making the time to do this. I've been looking forward to having you on the show for a while now, and it's great to to be able to do it in person while I'm in LA. Welcome to LA. Happy to be here with you. I've been a, a big fan of your work, admirer of of your work, and been to many of your restaurants over the last five, six, seven years, and and really want to explore where your enthusiasm and passion comes from and and how you've managed to cultivate that over the years. I think probably the the best place for us to start might be to go back to Maine to to Matthew Kenny as a youngster. What was what was life like for you then? Well I grew up in a in a small town on the mid coast and you know life was very simple. It was dictated by the weather and the seasons. If it was winter, we're, you know, we're skiing and sledding and snowmobiling. And when it's spring, we're fiddleheading with, with my dad or, or hunting in the fall. So I, I think it was a extremely connected to the environment and, um, and locality. And it was, uh, at the time, probably didn't appreciate it as much as I do now, but, you know, completely different experience than the one I have today. And as a family, I mean, you mentioned hunting then. So you didn't grow up plant-based. What was, what was mealtime like in, in the household? It was typical Maine, New England, you know, a lot of seafood. Uh, we, yeah, we hunted and fished, ice fishing in the winter. We had our own lobster traps. And, uh, I, you know, I shot my first deer when I was 10 years old. So it was, uh, you know, it was lean local protein and, you know, vegetables from the garden. And in the winter, things that were, you know, pickled or root vegetables like potatoes and so forth. So it was pretty, 
it was actually a very healthy diet. And it's not possible to eat that way today for the mass population. So, um, but looking back, I mean, I, you know, it was definitely a healthy way to grow up. And so were you sort of interested in food and the preparation of food and, and cooking as a, as a kid or in your teenage years? You know, I was the tallest kid in my school. I was about four inches, five inches taller than everybody in my class. And one day I stopped growing. I mean, I'm average height now. But instead of being able to rely on that sort of like that height advantage and so forth, because it was like small town, it's all about sports and everything. And, you know, I really had to think differently. I had to be fast instead of tall, fast instead of strong, fast instead of having that kind of advantage. So, you know, I realized in my teenage years that I was not as nearly as healthy as I, as I could be. So I changed my entire diet. I started going to a gym at five in the morning before school and started making my own meals to bring to school, which were, you know, whole grains and whole grain pastas and things like that. And I uh, was kind of mentored by this, this uh, natural bodybuilder who was on a Pritikin diet. I don't know if you know Pritikin. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was really inspiring to see how clean food could impact like your health, especially as a teenager, because we're just, you know, often putting like so much junk into our bodies. And uh, so I carried that all through college. So I always had this, this passion for, you know, feeling my best through food choices. And so as I understand, you finished high school, you left Maine and you pursued political science. Is that right? It wasn't, it wasn't a, 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 an immediate jump into culinary school. Is that sort of how it, how it went? Yes, I, I went to college. I studied international law, pre-law, uh, political science. Didn't really pick up a whole lot of like uh, motivation from the, the entire experience. Made some great friends and got some good life experience. And then I wanted to move to New York because I had developed friendships with people from New York in college. So instead of going straight to New York, I went to Hawaii um, on the island of Kauai. And did a lot of hiking and thinking. And it was really like while I was on a, on a hike one day that I was like, okay, I want to open a, a restaurant in New York. Interesting. It's, it's funny. I, uh, I had Rich Roll on my show a couple of times now, but his podcast started in Kauai. I didn't know that. Wow. The, uh, the island, the creative island, it seems, to, to conjure up the new ideas. It's a beautiful place. I've been there. Uh, so you move to New York. And this is the first time in a, in a big city like this. Was this a, a kind of new experience seeing the hustle and bustle? And is that how you fell in love with restaurants? You know, New York is, I'm, I'm a little bit of an introvert, not, not necessarily shy. I'm comfortable with people, but, you know, I, I keep to myself a lot. And, you know, when I moved to New York and, and having spent time in New York before I moved there, having seen that energy that's existing in restaurants with cultures from all over the world and the teams that come together to, it's a production every single night. So I, I really felt like that's a way I can be like connected and, and communicating with people and be creative without having to be like totally out there because, you know, as a producer, you're behind the scenes a little bit. It was, uh, it wasn't about the food. It wasn't about becoming a chef. It was really about 
the idea that this sort of business, this hospitality business, allows for pretty much every type of creativity anybody could ever aspire to to have. So I probably came at it from a much different perspective than most people. So walk me through the decision to to go to culinary school in the first place. Well, my first job was at a Sicilian restaurant. It was I was the only non-Italian in the kitchen. I got a little bit abused for that. But it was great. It was an incredible learning experience. And there was a pastry chef there who started working uh, a little bit after I started. She was American. And she told me, you know, look, you, you can't just learn everything you need to learn here. You need to really get some structure. And she recommended the French Culinary Institute. So I started going to school in the mornings at, you know, 6 or 7 a.m. And I go straight from school to the restaurant to cook every night, you know, from whatever, 3 to midnight. And so the the culinary school itself, was that what you had expected? What, what type of cooking did you, did you sort of learn there? Was it challenging? Was it something that you fell in love with immediately? You know, it was very eye-opening for me. I was, on the one hand, grateful for the technique and the structure. You know, we, we talk about mise en place to put in place. You learn about organization. It's a it's a habit that you can apply to any aspect of your life, you know, as a chef. Like it's like a dentist. If you go to the dentist, everything is laid out, it's clean, it's organized. Same thing as a chef. So I don't think I, I would ever be able to do what I can do now if I hadn't had that experience. On the other hand, I was very dismayed at the, the cuisine. Um, we were studying recipes that were probably from like the 1700s or something like reductions of cream and, you know, Bordelais. And um, it's hard for me to even fathom like why some of these recipes ever existed. So, you know, they, they serve a purpose. They taught us the technique and, um, and that can be applied to multiple things. But I didn't really love the food. I wasn't respecting the quality of the ingredients. We were, you know, ordering from like, I mean, the school was ordering from generic uh, companies bringing, you know, mediocre potatoes and and poor quality fish. Whereas where I grew up in Maine, if we wanted crab meat, for example, I knew exactly who was picking their crab meat on Friday and who was picking it on Tuesday. And um, so, you know, there was a big disconnect between my passion for, you know, local and seasonal and healthy cuisine and uh, and the culinary arts, which... I did respect, but not for all the reasons. So you finished culinary school, and that's in the in the nineties, around there. Nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. Okay, and then you you have a period where you go and, and work for other restaurants. Is that sort of where you went next? I went to work for a uh, three star French restaurant called La Caravelle. Um, you know, that was a kind of a natural step for somebody from French Culinary Institute. And I worked there for really less than a year. And the manager who had been running the Italian restaurant where I'd worked before had been hired to try to resurrect a uh, an Italian restaurant that was very trendy, but it was falling down. You know, it had gotten bad food reviews. And he basically told the owners that he would take it over if he could bring in his own chef. So he offered me the job as executive chef. I'd only been cooking for less than two years. At that point in time, were you amazed how quickly your life had changed from from living in in Maine 
to now being in this gigantic city and being an executive chef? Well, my dad's an entrepreneur, so I never really saw any other side. You know, never worked in corporate per se. Um, so I think it was kind of natural for me, but uh, no, it was all instinctual. I mean, I, I took the job of chef at this restaurant that was starting to, the, the sales, the revenue was declining and the reviews were getting bad. And uh, I walked in and, you know, I saw that they were pre-plating appetizers like two days before they're serving them. Uh, basically threw everything away and started over. Uh, so no, it was it was more like instinctual. I, di- I don't think I really put a lot of, you know, it's like a, I'm a big tennis fan. So I've been watching the, the US Open this week. And, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. You know, you can do your best work without think- overthinking it. Okay, so you moved through the, the 90s. And if I'm not mistaken, you start leaning into yoga. And and I've heard you say that yoga was uh, a practice that, in in some way, had you thinking about your food choices and the impact of those food choices. Can you can you talk to that? Yeah. So I I had been working. You know, it's it's very easy in this industry to to work a lot, and I had been working pretty much seven days a week for three years approximately. And on my thirtieth birthday. I decided to uh, do something for myself, so I joined a gym. And I was always working out and running my entire life, but those two, three years, I like, I really didn't have time. I wasn't getting out of shape because I was standing up, you know, twenty-four hours a day, but did not feel my best. So I joined the gym. First thing I did was took a, a yoga class. It was my first yoga class, and um, you know, I just had this massive reaction to, you know, closing my eyes and being present. And it really changed my life. So I started getting into it more and I became a regular at Jiva Mukti, which in New York at those, those times was like the kind of the trendy uh, yoga studio downtown. And, you know, they talked often about ahimsa, no harm to any beings. And you hear that over and over and over and over again. And also listen to your body and how, you know, your body responds to food and connecting more with the planet. So it, it was a long process for me. It was a couple of years, but eventually I realized that, you know, plant-based diet was the the path for me. So in the sort of late 90s, this is, I guess, uh, what was the kind of vegetarian, vegan, plant-based scene like in New York City? Yeah, this was around 2000, 2001. Um, there were a couple of, you know, places that were maybe a little trendy, like Zen Palette, a lot of like fake stuff. And and of course, there were, were some Indian vegan restaurants and there were some really weird, like uh, fringe, you know, hippie concepts out there. And, you know, one or two, like, but nothing, nothing upscale at those times. Was uh, Angelica's Kitchen, was that popular then? It was popular, yeah. I mean, you know, that's very like, that was very sort of what you'd expect, you know, macro, brown rice, vegetables, stuff like that. So it was, you know, I loved it. I mean, I wish it was still there. But in my own life, I love to eat that way. I just don't think that translates to changing the way the world, you know, decides to eat. Yeah. I fortunately got to go there a few times before it shut down and tried their cornbread that everyone was <laughs> everyone raves about. Um, okay, so we're, we're in the early 2000s. 
you've started to to rethink your own diet. You're still cooking at this stage, I imagine, at other places. When did the the idea come to start your own business? And was that often starting your own business means investment and uh, time and energy? Was that a scary proposition to lean into? Well, I'm a I'm a risk taker, so uh, you know the scary thing. I should be scared sometimes. Um, but I had I had uh, six or seven restaurants prior to September 11th, 2001, when the you know the World Trade Center incident happened, and I was very vulnerable in that I didn't have a lot of you know financial partners or corporate infrastructure. So after that, I I really didn't have much of a choice. I had to sell pretty much everything that I had and start over. So I was you know 32, 33, and um, you know, used to my career, like kind of flying and all of a sudden here I am, you know, having to recreate. And what I went to every day was yoga. That was where like, I found my balance. I just did it day after day after day and started planning, you know, my next move. And I had a backer uh, to do a French Moroccan restaurant. And one night I was invited by a friend to go to a raw vegan restaurant in the East Village in New York. And I was reluctant because I wasn't, you know, a vegan at that time, but I was open to it. But I knew they, you know, I love wine. They didn't serve wine. I like good music, good lighting. It's like bright lights, no music. <laughs> so we went there and uh, it was a small little place. It was a rainy Monday night. Most restaurants were empty. And this place was full of these people that had these glowing complexion and like bright eyes and like this amazing energy. And they were all like expounding on their fascination with this raw food movement, which was a big thing in those days. And, uh, and I was used to going out to restaurants and, you know, kind of being in a food coma after dinner, being tired, not feeling great. So I, I just ended that meal and, and started walking around the city. I walked for a couple hours and um, it really changed my mind about what, by the way, the food wasn't even good. It was just, it was more about, you know, opening my mind to what this chef's relationship to food should be and what our, what our service should be to the community and to ourselves. So yeah, the next day I just uh, told this uh, investor in our new restaurant that, you know, I really wanted to do a raw vegan concept. He was a little bit shocked, but uh, went along with it and that's what happened. And now here we are, 20 odd years later and, and, Today, what, 40, 40 something restaurants? Um, yeah, we're involved in over 50 actually, um, and, and quite a few other businesses. But uh, I mean, a lot of them, some of them are not open yet, but we have many in development. Was that, that growth vision, was that there from, from the beginning? In a way, I really felt like there was an opportunity to change the global food paradigm. I felt like, you know, we were missing something here. Like, I, I walked by my former culinary school one day where I went, the French Culinary Institute. This was right after I started focusing on plant-based. And uh, a bunch of chefs were standing on the back, you know, back alleyway, smoking cigarettes, drinking Cokes. And I'm like, this is not what the people that are, are feeding us should be doing. So, you know, yeah, I've been very, very motivated to um, to change it. You know, I think I believe in indulgence. I love food. I love wine. I love restaurants. I love going out. 
I really believe in enjoying food. We're pleasure seekers, right? But I think we've been, you know, led down the wrong path. And it's it's as hard as it is to say, you know, the culinary history of the world has, has led us down a path that leads to being unhealthy and uh, and not being healthy for the planet. So it's a, it's a very complex answer. But yes, I, I have been motivated from day one to do anything possible to uh, shift the global food paradigm toward a plant-based diet. In those early days, was there a particular restaurant that you opened where you, you just felt the success and the feedback and, and, and from that you knew that you would be able to build this into what you've built today? Um, it was more like 15 years of trying to survive because the market wasn't ready and, uh, you know, the, the media didn't care to write about plant-based like they do, you know, two articles in the New York Times this Wednesday, one in the New York Post today. The financial markets were not taking Beyond Meat public. You know, landlords, the last tenant they would ever select would be a vegan restaurant. So, it was more about uh, trying to stay alive for about 15, 16 years. And um, I mean, I believed in it, you know, like every time I was on a plane and that plane like hits a massive turbulence, I'm like, I'm not afraid of like crashing in, in this plane. But what I, what I really want is to be able to show the world, you know, what's possible here with food. I think that's a, a good thing for people to understand because I'm sure some people may look at Matthew Kenny, perhaps not overnight success in terms of one year, but maybe they think it's the last five years that you've been really pushing hard. But from from what it sounds, this has been, this is decades in the making. Oh, yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, 15 years of waking up at 5 a.m., trying to figure out how we're going to keep the company going, you know, how we can convince the world that this is a choice that they, they should make. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a long time. How do you... How do you personally manage to do so much? I think someone would look at the resume, 40, you know, 50 restaurants, 12 or more cookbooks. It's a cookbook almost every year or every other year, it seems. You have products, you have a, a training institute. There's a lot going on. How do you, how do you personally manage your schedule and also the, the the mental and physical health side of things so that you can stay passionate and stay energized? Well, it's not always easy. Today, for example, you know, I've been really tired this week, to be honest. It's been tough. We're, we're launching, uh, you know, just in October, for example, we're launching a Dubai Expo. We're doing three restaurants and a food truck and we're doing a project in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that same month, we're opening in London at Selfridges and a restaurant at the one and only hotel in Maldives. And a couple other things. So, you know, it's it's intense, but I try to let go. I have found that the times where I start to get a little bit overwhelmed, as long as I put the time in over the years to be consistent with our narrative, with our, you know, our story and our brand standards and our sort of style guide and our, you know, the way we do things. Like, for example, we don't put dollar signs on our menus anywhere. So... It's just one little thing out of like hundreds. And, you know, we've had the same team for years. Um, Nobody's uh, left our team for the last, I I think, almost three years on our corporate team. So they, uh, you know, they're better than me. And that's my goal is to just keep cultivating, you know, those that are better than me. But at least I I can create sort of a narrative and a, 
a roadmap that maybe is unique. What are the the key things that have worked for you from that side of things in terms of developing staff culture and, and trying to reduce turnover? I think a lot of people listening would find that to be particularly interesting. Well, we had a lot of turnover early on. You know, I think uh, we need to recognize that as individuals, we're all, you know, nobody, I'm not more creative than anybody else. We're all creative. We're all entrepreneurial, trying to create platforms where our team members can be, and you know, I don't use the word even employee, for example, but trying to create a platform where our team can perhaps have more room to create than they would on their own. So, you know, I always think about it from their perspective. It's like anything else in life. If you really want to connect with people, you have to think about, you know, putting their, yourself in their shoes. And um, so I, I try to do that. If someone you meet for the first time is asking you about your restaurants, how do you kind of describe the group of restaurants? It's different to, you know, a chain of restaurants which all go under the same name. You have a myriad of, of different cuisines and concepts how would you go about sort of explaining the sort of a entire operation? Well, you know, we, we want to impact every area where food is served, whether it's in a hospital or a drive-through or fine dining, you know, 15-course menu or at a fancy hotel. So we're quite adaptable. Our only mantra is that whatever segment we're in, we really want to try to be the best. That's our goal. Whether, you know, so if we're doing a drive through, we're going to try to be the best and cleanest. That's important too, non processed, uh, plant based drive through in the world. Same thing with our grocery store and, and our pizza concept. You know, our chef trained in Italy with some of the best pizza aisles in the country. Uh, we use the best, you know, heirloom, uh, double zero flour we can buy and, uh, and so forth. So it's really about the segment. And uh, there is no segment that we don't want to touch, at least, you know, as long as I have energy to do so. Is, is vegged, is that the, the drive-through? We have two. The first one to open was, um, we have a, a food hall in Rhode Island, which is our highest revenue business. It's called Plant City. And, you know, in a really nice uh, district of Providence. And during COVID, obviously, we had certain restrictions and so forth. So instead of opening another plant city, our partners who are also extremely entrepreneurial, especially my partner, Kim, she decided to do a drive-through. So we took over a former, like, I don't know, Papa Gino's or Papa something and, um, and opened Plant City X for Express. And uh, we had already started the development of Veg as well here in California. So we're, we're involved in two drive-through projects, one on the East Coast, one on the West. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. The double zero flower you just mentioned... And, and I've got to say, Double Zero is fantastic. I've been there many times here and in New York and tell everyone to go there that, that is visiting these cities and they all have such a great time. Uh, where's the name from, Double Zero? 
So the the it's from the flower doubles doubles double lot. Um, you know, it's a traditional Italian flower used in in uh, Neapolitan pizza. The original name was zero zero, like two zeros plus co. So double zero and co. And everybody was calling it uh oh or oh or zero. <laughs> you know, it was just a mess. So. Six months in, eight months in, and this was like six or seven years ago, uh, we changed it to double zero. I thought it just sounded like much hipper and even more memorable. Was that in, that's in a number of states now, right? But was that in New York first? New York was the first. Uh, Los Angeles was second. And then we opened within Plant City, the food hall. Um, and then this summer, we opened Baltimore and Boston. You mentioned hospitals just a little moment ago. Uh, and I think a lot of people would agree that hospital food could could do with a little bit of a revamp. How have you found those conversations in terms of getting, A, just having a conversation and then B, having, having an opportunity to serve food within that setting? You know, just like I believe chefs have a responsibility to sort of further like healthy food choices that are also still, you know, pleasurable. I think that uh, my dad was in the hospital he was having chest pains. This was years ago. And I was shocked that they served him meatloaf and mashed potatoes with butter. Shocking. So we are working. I, I wish I could say more, but we are working with a couple of, including one of the largest you know, medical institutions in the world with hospitals and that infrastructure to, um, to deliver this message in a, in a bigger way. I think it, it can't just be chefs. It can't just be you know, beyond meat in the grocery store. It's got to come from the schools, from the hospitals, from the airlines, from corporate services, even sporting events. So it really, you know, we're interested in every avenue. Thankfully, I'm seeing activity in every avenue. That's great. The The ideation process, how, how does that take place with your team? How do you come to what the new cuisine or concept is that you'd like to explore? Is that through experimenting in the kitchen yourself? Is that through traveling and, and trying different flavors around the world? Um, a lot of it's traveling. You know, you're from, you're from Australia. I went to this uh, place in Melbourne called the, the Monk. Have you been there? I haven't been to the Monk, no. I think, I think that was the name, but um, you know, super rustic type of Buddhist cuisine. And, you know, it's been inspiring this really upscale project I'm working on in uh, in New York trying to develop. But, you know, a lot of it's, yeah, a lot of it's, you know, through meeting people, through dining, through traveling. You know, I spend a lot of time every day um, creating. You know, I'm on Pinterest, for example. One of my biggest addictions is Pinterest. <laughs> um, and it's uh, it's always inspiring me. And I have a board for pretty much everything we want to do for the next five years. Like we want to do a rural hotel and an urban hotel and a, a farm within a restaurant. And, you know, it's, a, it's like 20, 30 different things. So everything I can dream about, I devote a good amount of time every day to really, you know, exploring what the possibilities are. And from a, a business sense, how do you go about taking all those ideas and sort of prioritizing things so that you can execute as opposed to perhaps trying to do too much at once? Well, I, I always do too much at once. Uh, but, you know, we have, we do have a, a really large 
innovation team. Like for example, our our test kitchen team is probably seven or eight incredibly talented chefs that are not running restaurants day to day. They're they're innovating, they're creating content, they're doing photo shoots, they're training, you know, the restaurant chefs. So we've invested heavily into that. It's not very common in our industry. So I do have the luxury of like being able to dream a little bit and and seeing it, you know, come to life. But that's true across the board with our with our company, you know, with with creative development, with content creation, with marketing. We we have a good team and they're they're super innovative. They know I'm a little crazy in terms of growth uh expectations and um and then I have a few filters as well, you know. So my right hand is this guy Matt who just walked out the side door. Um, he's always, you know, trying to keep me in line, which is impossible, but he tries. How's it all been during COVID? I guess different countries have had different types of restrictions and, and lockdowns and things that chefs and teams and would have had to have dealt with. And, and of course, there's leases everywhere. How's, how have you sort of been able to navigate that? Yeah, I mean, it could have been a catastrophe. Um, but having gone through a lot of challenges in my career, I went through, you know, years and years of really just struggling to, uh, to survive. It prepares you for situations like this. And we, we were really creative. The first thing we did, you know, most companies were furloughing and laying off, um, laying off part of their team, letting people go, closing restaurants. We made the decision to launch our online academy, Food Future Institute. So, you know, we rented an Airbnb. We did it really safely and, and everybody was protected. And uh, we hired a production crew and a videographer and a web developer. And we launched our school, our online school, about three, four months into COVID, expecting to get 100 students in the first month. We had 500 enroll in the first day. So, you know, that gave us like tremendous amount of like confidence that we can just keep innovating and not everything works. We try a lot of things that, you know, might be a pop-up concept or this or that. Maybe it doesn't work. But um, fortunately here in the U.S., we, you know, the, the governmental programs were quite supportive. Internationally, it was a little bit tough, you know, because we work in Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, and so forth. So, you know, even Sydney still locked down. So internationally, it hurt, you know, hurt a little bit. But with our company, most of our international projects are licensing agreements. So it's not a huge impact to us. But, you know, it's still sad to see our partners struggling. What would you recommend to, say, smaller restaurant owners? Perhaps they own one restaurant during this time. Are there any kind of key takeaways that you would recommend people to sort of shift their focus to? I mean... You have to remove the walls. You know, a, um, well, I'm holding this tennis ball here. So if I were to make a, a burger out of this organic tennis ball, you know, it's not just to sell that tennis ball burger in the restaurant. The thing to think about is like, what IP is within that? What can I write about in a book? Can I package this or can I package the sauce and sell it as a consumer? item, can I teach it through education and, uh, and it becomes part of our curriculum? Can I license it out to another country? You know, restaurants and restaurateurs are so passionate. They're some of the most passionate, hardworking people and they give so much of themselves. And 
there's a lot of limits on, you know, they, they have self-imposed limitations on what they're doing with these creations. And I really want to encourage people to, uh, to think beyond that because there's, you know, so much care, passion, and love that goes into it. And, you know, it's a real tough business. And um, so, yeah, I would love to see, and this is something we, we plan to teach in the future, I would really love to see the industry itself expand its borders and, and distribute its product and its content in new ways. It's a great point to develop some revenue streams outside of the plate being served on the table to the consumer. And you're right, there is, there's so much creation and there are so many incredible ideas within the industry that can be shared in a number of ways. What did you make of 11 Madison changing their menu to plant-based? Oh, that was one of the best things that could happen to our industry. Uh, and personally, but also, you know, just industry-wide, I was, I was thrilled. I've been saying for the last 15 years, the day that five or six or 10 of the world's top chefs decide to go plant-based, it's a game changer. The whole world changes because they're so incredibly, you know, you can see I get goosebumps talking about it. Um, I've always been waiting for this moment. And, you know, I'm friends with John George and he's really into plant-based. He's not fully plant-based, but he's a big proponent. Alain Ducasse in Paris yesterday, uh, there was an announcement that he's opening a pretty much vegan restaurant. Uh, you know, Rene Redzepi talks about, you know, plant-based and all the, all the most influential intelligent chefs in the world are subscribing to this. So it's amazing. Um, and, you know, Eleven Madison is so incredibly expensive that it allows us to properly charge for, you know, our food. Because one of the biggest challenges when I got into plant-based was people would pay $30 for their Dover sole or their whatever chicken. But they're like, oh, it's just vegetables. I'm not going to pay more than, you know, 16 or $18. And yet so much more work goes into it because we're making our cheese. We're not buying our cheese. So, you know, it was really tough. Um, so it's not so much about making money, just about, you know, creating sustainable businesses. So I think that it's phenomenal. On the work that goes into it, and, and you mentioned the Institute before and the number of people that signed up, do you, do you find that sort of traditional culinary training lacks in terms of the creativity and the skills required to prepare great tasting plant-based meals without animal products? You know, I've only been to one school, but I have visited multiple uh, education facilities around the world from Morocco to France to the US. And I find that they are, you know, 80% focused on technique, knife skills and organization, mise en place and, uh, you know, emulsification and sauces and so forth. But that really isn't going to take us forward. In my, in my viewpoint, you know, the, the culinary education of the future needs to involve agri-tech and food tech and sustainability and biodynamics and, you know, consumer packaged goods. Chefs shouldn't just be trained to cook for a restaurant. So I think the system to be, you know, I try not to be too controversial, but I think the entire culinary education system is completely broken and has to be <laughs> rebuilt. Needs a revamp. Do you think that it, and this again could be controversial, 
But in your opinion, do you think it takes a better chef to make plant-based foods, to make vegetables taste as good as animal foods? Well, technique is everything. You know, it doesn't matter how creative we are or how experienced we are. We really have to have the right technique. You know, Justin Hilbert, who's our corporate uh, culinary director, director of culinary for our company, he has impeccable technique, far better than myself. He's also very creative. But without that, you know, you really can't train your team. And, you know, you, you can't execute. You might have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have the motor skills to, to make it a reality, what good is that? You know, it's like being an engineer. So the technique is, is the first step. And, and then, you know, creativity. But a lot of the creativity comes from experience you know, dining out, reading about restaurants, like looking at food, you know, and, and exploring it and, and taking a very creative approach to everything, you know, we've experienced through, through life, even smelling it as a child, you know, food memory. We have so many opportunities throughout our lives to like create that sort of foundation to become chefs. And I know you don't use a lot of kind of uh, plant-based meats. There are a few, I guess, on some of the menus, but it's not a it's not a main sort of feature of your restaurants by any means, from what I've seen anyway. Do you do you consider what it is about animal foods that people love when when creating new recipes and uh, developing new menus? It's been a uh, it's a curve. From the very beginning, I knew that we had to give people things that, that made them feel familiar to animal-based foods, to, you know, to feel comfortable. But for the entire time I've been involved in this segment, I have been saying that you know, we will slowly navigate away from that. And we have been. Where plant-based food has its own language. We don't need to be a steak. It's a beet. You know? It's a smoked beet. It's a truffled mushroom pate, whatever. So it's a process, you know, we're probably 40, 50% of the way through that, that curve to the point where, you know, it's not going to be as, as necessary to imitate anything. I mean, the kids who are growing up today, not eating meat, and there are many of them, tens, hundreds of thousands, they're not going to care if something is a burger or not. Yeah, that's that's interesting to uh, to think about that and and how that might change as time goes on and and how plants can kind of be fully expressed to show up as themselves as opposed to trying to always imitate something. Well, it's what I love about what Daniel's doing at Eleven Madison Park. He's not imitating anything. He's highlighting cuisines that are traditionally plant based to begin with, but he's going out, you know on this wild creative journey to take those, those traditional recipes to the next level. And it's great. It's, I, I applaud him. I think he's doing an amazing job. I'm sure you get this question quite a bit. Uh, you know, it's one thing to, to go to one of your restaurants and enjoy plant-based food. And then perhaps another thing to, to go home and make a plant-based dish, particularly for someone who is transitioning or thinking about eating more plant-based doesn't have a whole lot of experience in preparing the food and and perhaps they've tried to work with some type of bean or tempeh or tofu and have found it to be a little bland. What are your kind of 
simple tips, I guess, for someone at home who is preparing plant-based foods to to make sure that they are bringing some flavor? I mean, it comes from the dashi, from the stock, you know, the flavors coming from the, oftentimes from the the liquid, the dressing, you know, we, I love to make paella, a big paella pan and, you know, just making like an incredibly aromatic vegetable stock. Um, we had a ton of herbs growing out in the back and, um, you know, using the best saffron and so forth. So like making a really rich stock, whether it's a risotto or whatever it is. So I, I think that, uh, that part of my French training is is still intact. And uh, that's that's really a pretty simple way of saying whatever is holding your dish together, whatever is binding it together, it's really like that's where the flavor has to be. And so you use a lot of herbs and spices to, to get that flavor into the stock? You know, I'm kind of a sattvic type of person. I, I don't like things that are too hot or too garlicky or oniony, but... Herbs and uh, and aromatics, uh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, that's an interesting question. Given we're sitting in your home, what what are the go tos, the regular meals that you like to have at home yourself? Oh, it's so basic. You know, you'd be shocked. Everybody sees the, you know this fancy food that we do on online and everything. But you know, like for me, my favorite lunch is like a few sheets of nori and and sauerkraut and uh, a little bit of plant-based cheese and, and maybe some fresh greens, you know, basic, basic, basic. I'm, I'm the most simple eater on the planet. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Plant-based cheese. I think cheese is one of the the animal foods that is tough to give up uh, and probably one of the last things that many people give up if they are fully moving to a plant-based diet. And and I know at Double Zero, you have fantastic cheeses on the pizzas. Am I right? You you make all of your cheeses at the restaurants? Yeah, there are a couple of restaurants we have that are more casual where we actually buy, you know, different brands. But um, But most of our restaurants make their own cheeses. Of course, we have, you know, faster, softer cheeses and and then, you know, aged cheeses. But uh, yeah, it's my, it's my like thing. You know, everybody asks me what my, what my sweet tooth is, uh, is about. I'm like, I really don't have a sweet tooth. But one thing I love, you know, Sean from Grounded. Yeah, I know the brand Grounded. I, I mean, his like squeezable, like whatever you call it, that like nacho type cheese, that stuff is like amazing. So, um, but yeah, we make it too. I mean, we make that same kind of cheese for our Mexican restaurants. Funny, they I don't think they sell the the cheese in Australia. Not that I've seen, but I've seen it here. I think I saw it in Air One. I haven't seen it there, but they I buy it online. Uh, I think he's based in uh, Santa Monica, and yeah, maybe it was Whole Foods. I saw it. If you're making cheese at home, a lot of them these are nut cheeses. How important is the the sort of fermentation, the adding of the probiotics? Well, it's extremely important because, you know, nuts are not that easily digestible. 
And, um, you know, the fermentation aspect, the probiotic is, is really allowing our body to, you know, consume a heavier amount of nuts than we're probably programmed to take. So I think it's, uh, I think it's critical, actually. If someone's hearing that for the first time, can you kind of just uh, outline a recipe without the, the sort of measurements? Like, how does it work? How do you use probiotics and, and nuts to make a cheese? Yeah, so, so the nuts have to be soaked, um, you know, to, to release the uh, enzyme, enzyme inhibitors or at least nuts with skin. So we, we soak them, you know, could be six hours, could be 12, and then strain them and then blend them with a little bit of filtered water and add a probiotic and, and allow it to start the fermentation process overnight usually one to two days, and then we flavor them after that. So like just picture cashews that are soaking and that are blended with a little water and, and you've got a probiotic and the next day or two days later, you're, you're basically adding smoked paprika and uh, sea salt and truffle oil and whatever it is you, know, you want. Uh, then we form it into a wheel, usually using a ring mold. And uh, you can age it or, or dehydrate it to expedite that process. And um, yeah, that's it. Pretty straightforward. And then enjoy. <laughs> uh, so I'm guessing if I was to ask you what your favorite dish is out of all of your restaurants on the current menus, is it, is it a dish that involves plant-based cheese? You know, I, I still love our kimchi dumplings, which don't have cheese. Uh, it's, it's a dish that's got kind of a special meaning for me, and uh, I never get really tired of that dish. Um, speaking of probiotics, but no, that one doesn't happen to have cheese. And I, I love pizza. Like, I love pizza and pasta, but I've had so much pizza over the last few years. Like, I'm a little bit like pizza weary. Where can you get the, uh, the kimchi dumplings and, and what? What inspired those? Uh, we, we have them on the menu in Plant Food and Wine, LA. They're on the menu at uh, Altia, Chicago. And uh, at uh, Alibi in Sydney, they'll be on the menu at Odessa in London. So quite a few different cities. I was at a Japanese restaurant in Boston called Oya and had an amazing tasting meal. And I've been there. Oh, really? I went there about 10 years, little small like down an alleyway, it's a little small place. You yes. do like a de- degustation. Did you have their vegan menu? The uh, Yeah. They have like 20 vegan dishes. Yeah. And you sit there for a long time, right? Yeah. It's uh, it's incredible. It's in place. the back bay. Yeah. And one of the dishes that I had was a kimchi dumpling. And it was a traditional dumpling, kind of thick and kimchi inside. It was okay. But, you know, I was like, wow, we can make this green. We'll use a coconut, you know, we use young coconut, add cilantro juice, make it green. We use red kimchi so that the filling is red, you know, blah, blah, blah. So just kind of ran away with that, you know, that tasting gave me an idea and then ran, ran with it, presented it to our, our corporate chef at the time and he uh, made it a reality. If someone's visiting the States, I know you have, you have restaurants all around the world, but let's, most of them are in the States. If someone's visiting and said to you they have a uh, an open schedule they can get to pretty much any state uh and they'd like to to dine in two or three of your restaurants what are the the two or three that you would say are kind of must tries i mean i think they they have to go to the garden at plant food and wine it's a really magical place going there tonight you know baya in san francisco is really interesting because it it was 
previously a um, one of the best known restaurants in San Francisco, and it's a big, big place. And until recently, it wasn't possible to operate such a large restaurant, you know, that was plant based. Plant City, our food hall, also amazing. We've served over a million people in less than two years. And uh, and Double Zero, of course, you know, that's a go-to for everybody. I've got my eyes on Costa Planta. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, me too. I want to go to Costa Rica. <laughs> I think that looks pretty cool down there in the jungle. From your perspective as, as someone who is very much shaping the, the plant-based food movement and has done for a long time now, how do you see the, the future of this space, say in, in 15, 20 years time from now, what, what does the, the landscape look like? Uh, well, I, I think we're seeing the beginning of a complete uh, food paradigm shift where, you know, we've always had vegan food, right? So, but it was dominated by animal products. I don't know, the percentage, 80, 90% of meals probably had animal products involved. And I think it's quite simply just going to shift. Animal products won't go away, but, you know, plant-based will will dominate, whether it's in schools or hospitals or universities or grocery stores, high-end restaurants. And, uh, and, you know, the, the animal products will still be there, but... Hopefully, they'll be produced in a more sustainable way that is not harming the animals, not harming our environment, and promoting health. So I really do have a lot of, you know, even though there's so many difficult things happening with our climate change and so forth, I really do have a lot of faith in society and making this change. I think it's happening faster than I expected, and I'm just thrilled about it. And I'm so happy that... Many other people are doing it, so I don't have to be working 120 hours a week. <laughs> now, tell me, the, the institute that you've set up for, for chefs, are these people that are trained and then are working within your restaurants, or is it a mix of that and, and, and also chefs who may have their own restaurant around the world or perhaps are thinking of opening up a restaurant? What does that look like? Uh, we have about uh, 2,500 active students from probably 75, 80 countries around the world. So it's all of the above. There are students that have their own restaurants. There are professional chefs that want to learn more about plant-based. We have novices who have never cooked, never held a knife in their hand. From all walks of life, all ages. So it's it's really, uh, it's extremely diverse. But uh the thing they have in common is they really want to learn about elevated plant-based cuisine because that's not how we're traditionally trained to cook. And uh, so we need to give people the tools and uh, the skills and the recipes and creativity to be able to bring that into their own life. It's kind of got to the point now, I guess, if, if you're a restaurant and you don't have any plant-based dishes on your menu, then you're likely to be leaving some, some profits on the table. Uh, I, I hope so. <laughs> I, um, no, I think so. I mean, especially here in California, you don't have, but I mean, it's true in, in Brazil and Mexico, wherever we go these days, there's, uh, we have no problem and have had no problem in any country, uh, eating well on a plant-based diet. Am I right that you, you're also going to be offering a, an online platform that that helps people learn skills for cooking at home, so not just for, for chefs, is that right? We do, actually. We launched um, FFI Foundations 
was our first course. Then we launched FFI Home, which is a, you know, it's more about meal planning and nutrition and, and so forth. We launched that about two months ago. And then we're launching our on-site classes uh, in February. How's that going? We just started the construction uh, this week. So uh, yeah, it's looking good. We haven't really even announced it yet, but um, excited about it. You know, we had, we had to hold back because of the pandemic. That's why we did online first. You've certainly got your, your uh, plate full. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for hanging out. It's uh, been a pleasure to have you on the show. Really enjoyed getting to know your story a bit more. Is there anything that you feel like we, we missed? No, I think you, you, you really covered a lot. I mean, I wish I had the, such a great voice as you do, but, uh, you know, being Australian, you got it, you nailed it. So, um, no, this was great. Really a pleasure to meet in person and, and be here with you. Yeah, I love what you're doing, and uh, I look forward to, to watching the, the Matthew Kenny show as it continues to play out and unfold over the next decade and beyond. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take. Probably one of the most common questions that I get actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by Nutrikind. This is a product I formulated for Nutrikind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. The right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutraKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at PLANTPROOF.com and if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutraKind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.